0: Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and we're having a bit of an emergency here, but while I try and sort that out, a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. The story just sucks, man. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is completely given away by the title. I'm here to talk of the stories of film, and I tend to talk about production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all the bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love, just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast have more of a mainstream leaning to them than anything else. They're certainly films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to punch down. I try not to do snark. This podcast is a celebration of cinema, a celebration of movies, an appreciation that they're really hard to make and just me being thankful that they're made. The two films I'm going to talk about in this episode, neither of which hit box office expectations. I think that's pretty fair to say. Both of them have, well, to my mind, interesting stories behind them. So I'm going to explore those. I'm going to crack on with the first of the two I'm talking about. Let me take you back to 1997 and a very hyped summer sequel. Here's a clip. i in again. <laughs> No, 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 no. Come on, keep to keep getting. Engine on steering controls, non-functional. You gotta stop the ship! I don't have any control! Oh, man! This summer. <laughs> gotta get them out. What do you mean, wait? Rush hour. We're not gonna stop! Everybody down! <laughs> Hits the water. Sandra Bullock. I'm never leaving the house again. Jason Patrick. Speed 2 Cruise Control. Who is running the ship? Oh, yeah. I am. Nothing beats the rush. Right, well, strap yourselves in. That was a clip from 1997's high-budget sequel, Speed 2, Colon Cruise Control, directed by Jan De Bont, screenplayed by Randall McCormick and Jeff Nathanson, and starring Sandra Bullock, Jason Patrick, not Keanu Reeves, Willem Dafoe, and Glenn Plummer, all in the ensemble. And, I mean, if there's one thing that Hollywood loves, it's a low-budget, sleeper hit movie. And 20th Century Fox very much had one on its hands in the summer of 1994 when a film called Speed uh, turned cinematographer Jan de Bont into the town's must-have new action director. It also graduated Keanu Reeves and his haircut from teen heartthrob to, and primarily comedy star to action blockbuster lead. And after turns in films such as Demolition Man and The Vanishing, it made a movie star out as Sandra Bullock as well. It was also cheap. And it also made a lot of money. And amongst the many beauties of speed, which I've covered before and I love a lot, uh, apart from the fact that it's great, is it's got a simple, easy to sell high concept. So notwithstanding the fact that if you look at speed, it's actually broken into three bits. It's the central middle part, a bus that can't drop below 50 miles per hour else it will blow up that really caught the imagination, gave it a sales hook and turned it into a a metaphorical perfect storm. It had the right plot, the right film, a hot director, great casting, stars on their way up at just the right moment. And so no wonder 20th Century Fox got moving quickly with the idea of a sequel. But the surprise hit status of Speed came with problems, because when it became clear from early test screenings that Fox had something on its hands, on the eve of release, what Fox didn't really have was much of an option on any of the star performers. That Now, if uh, Speed was being greenlit, you would imagine Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock would be signed up for at least a trilogy of films. But those deals weren't in place at this stage. That whilst there was some hold on Jander Bont returning, writer Graham Yost, did, that was no guarantee. Uh, Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves, no guarantee at all, and and so there was a problem here. This was no, this was just not going to be anywhere near as cheap a Speed, given the price of everyone concerned had shot up. Now, we were in an era of Hollywood where there wasn't really the demand for a two-year turnaround on a sequel. In fact, 1997's Batman and Robin, which is intrinsically tied to Speed 2, would start the process of turning things around on that. Three years to get a sequel up and running, well, that felt about right. Not least because the star talent had other commitments. Fox had just signed Reeves up to star in A Walk in the Clouds. Sandra Bullock was going to make While You Were Sleeping. Um, But there were plans to get Speed 2 up and running nonetheless and by November 1994 as the film was repeating its big screen success on video in the US Fox was bullish about the follow up uh, by this stage it had got Jan Bond to commit to making the film although he was off to make a movie called Twister first and then the plan was that Speed 2 would slot into his schedule straight after that now, Bont's given quite a few interviews about this film, and he would admit to The Nation, uh, the the outlet The Nation, that he didn't really see a sequel in speed. And as such, I mean, he was instrumental in coming up with some of the story elements of what we'd ultimately get. But he would read a lot of scripts, t- an awful lot of scripts, just trying to find something that would it would just ignite him really and make him think that they had something there. Now, by the end of 1994, talks were underway with Keanu Reeves at that stage as well and Sandra Bullock. And Fox was, as Entertainment Weekly reported, wooing Bullock particularly with a, sto- a storyline that beefed up her character. And whilst it wouldn't disclose what that storyline was, uh, nonetheless, the plan was to beef her role up even further into in the second film. Now, de Bont himself would ultimately reflect in an article over, uh, over on the, whoa, it's not me, website, that he felt the he felt an obligation to make the second film, given that Fox had taken such a gamble on him with the first. He said, the reality is the studio wanted to make the movie, and I had a deal with them, and I felt like they'd given me a chance to make the first one, so I felt obliged, almost, to do that as well. Uh, the turning point would be, when the casting didn't get quite, uh, didn't go quite down the road that was anticipated, and as, as Yanderbond would admit, I started getting very worried. So, I'll come to that shortly because at this stage they still didn't really have a story and one person who wasn't heavily involved in coming up with the direction Speed 2 would go in was the writer of the original movie, Graham Yost, that he would he'd come up with a couple of ideas for where the new film would go but ultimately he wouldn't be a part of it in the end and his ideas were on that massive pile of scripts that DeBont was working through and as he made Twister he was he was just sorting through to see if if any of them, uh, well hooked them in really and The turning point was when he had a dream, and he would reflect in an interview. He said, It's always fun to destroy things that look and appear. To be very expensive. He said it's a lot more fun than destroying a paper box. And what would be better than to have a five-star luxury cruise liner. Basically end up in the middle of a hotel. And he, this came to him in a dream. That as he would say to the New York Times. The idea of an out of control ocean liner. Running smack into a tranquil Caribbean village. And once Jan de Bont had got that scene in his head. The script was reverse engineered from that point to, to accommodate it that this wasn't a case of they came up with a story and worked out the end point they came up with the end point and then worked out the story and the screenplay was written backwards from the image that de Bont had had in his dream. It's a good job he wasn't having other dreams that could have been a very different film. And so screenwriters Randall McCormick and Jeff Nathanson were ultimately hired for this one. Uh, Nathanson in particular came to Jan de Bont's attention because of the uncredited rewrite work he'd been doing on the on twister he would do uh, uncredited rewrite work as well on rush hour a few years later I will come to that in a future podcast I mean his only published credit to that point was the, the 1995 movie for better or worse which I've not heard of either I'm afraid but he was in and he was offered the gig of co-writing a major huge studio blockbuster and as he would say to uh, the ain't it cool news website he said i guess you could say that was a big deal at the time um and this is in specific relation to getting the Twister rewrite work he said that led to speed 2 which was obviously spoiler a complete disaster but at the time i was getting the chance to rewrite a big studio movie and the fact that it was on a cruise ship that didn't go more than four knots and didn't have keanu reeves didn't even bother me because I was ex- I was so excited to be part of a real movie now there's also a story that does the rounds that Speed 2 would use a script called Troubleshooter by James Haggin as its base uh, a script that was identified as a possible for Die Hard 3 that there was, a, I, I think it's pretty well known there the, the original plan for Die Hard 3 was to set it on a ship and then the Steven Seagal headline Under Siege came out set on a ship and so they abandoned the plan to do Die Hard 3 on water. Um, this this story it doesn't seem to hold an awful lot of ready water. Um, but it was a it was a script in the Fox archives, but ultimately what we got in Speed 2 didn't seem really to lean awfully on it. But I just wanted to acknowledge that that script that story and that script was out there. The big hammer blow to speed two cruise control, which I mean on paper looked like a sure thing, was when Keanu Reeves ultimately turned the film down, and this was seismic at the time Keanu Reeves was not a massive movie star at this point in his career Fox had just offered him some 11 12 million dollars to reprise his role from the first movie but Reeves wasn't really feeling it and also there were other things going on in his life that I mean it was known at the time he would go off for a tour with his band Dogstar and he he would also instead of going for Speed 2 sign up to take part in the film The Devil's Advocate opposite Al Pacino Uh, with The Devil's Advocate Advocate, I mean, it proved that it wasn't a money issue with Speed 2. With The Devil's Advocate, he would famously cut his salary to allow Al Pacino to co-star in that movie. It was also said that it was Fox that circulated the tale that... He was off touring with his band rather than making the film, which I don't think went down particularly well, nor was it massively truthful from what I can ascertain. And in fact, he'd just come off making another action movie, Chain Reaction, which had been a very bumpy and physical and demanding production. And he wanted to try something else. Now, Reeves would also say, he said, when I I read the script, it just didn't deliver. And he said, fundamentally, I thought a film called Speed on an ocean liner was counterintuitive. I always felt like it was going to be in that scenario. Then it was going to be like Jack Traven was trying to propose to Annie. Those the characters played by Reeves and Bullock. But that this thing got in the way and in the middle of some crazy thing, he's like, will you marry me? And she's like, what? And he said, but at the time, just where I was at, I was I was physically exhausted. And the script, I just didn't think it was there. So I couldn't get on the boat and the news dropped and uh, jaw dropping that Reeves was going to rip up his biggest paycheck to date. Jan de Bont would give an interview saying he thinks he made a mistake, uh, he thinks Reeves made a mistake turning the film down. Reeves would concede maybe I did make a mistake. Spoiler on this one, he didn't but we'll come to that. And so it was the, the scramble was on to try and shepherd a replacement together. So Sandra Bullock was on board, that's worth noting, and she pocketed her first eight-figure payday for this one and also got a deal from Fox to make a film that she really wanted to get off the ground, called Hope Floats, that did Julie get made. But it was Jason Patrick, not the obvious star to headline an action movie, who was identified as a proper, a, a possible replacement for Reeves. And in fact, Patrick at that point, his film choices, I mean, they, they it's not that they were uncommercial, but there were some on the art house side of things. And when he was taking on commercial projects, they tended to have real weight to them. Films such as Sleepers, for instance, which were giving him profiles, certainly... But on this one, he was offered the lead role. He was given a good payday and it was again, it was it was doing something different for him. And conditional that script changes were made, Jason Patrick duly signed on the dotted line. And as he would, as he would reflect in an interview, he didn't take this one for the money, but he did it with a view of opening up his profile and his presence outside of America. So as it would it broaden the appeal of the independent films he was making that, he was on board with. So he said, I was making a lot of these independent movies before the independent movement. And as he said to IGN, when I did things like After Dark, My Sweet and The Beast of War and Rush... There was no Miramax. So these were just uncommercial movies as opposed to independent films with people to write about them, with people to compare them to other independent films. And so he was doing this in his 20s, but he didn't have the name for these films to break through outside of America. And so a lot of them were falling flat and he figured a big commercial role, make his name a bit more recognizable But well, there was some wisdom to that. Uh, Elsewhere in the casting, I mean, the the villain was going to be key to this, not least because Dennis Hopper was a a crucial part of the original Speed Ensemble as a down-to-earth villain with a a mischievous plan. And so Gary Oldman was said to have been offered the role of the foe in Speed 2, but he was given a pair of movie movie villain roles to pick from at this time, and he decided to go with Air Force One instead, that would come out later in the same year as Speed 2, and let's just say was... uh, a more successful production. And so in the end, it, they veered towards Willem Dafoe, who duly signed on the dotted line. I have to say, Willem Dafoe's performance in Speed 2 is an absolute hoot. Now, ahead of production, Jan de Bond, knew that th- this was going to be a film shot on water, And that was going to bring with it certain challenges. And the stories of films such as Jaws and Waterworld and The Abyss. Any films in and around water going over budget and really hard to control. Well they were very well known. And so de Bond wanted to kind of head that off a little bit. Now he figured that they were going to be shooting primarily on a large ship in a controlled environment. And so the water would be less of a problem on his film. Uh, It would prove not to be the case. But he would go off and talk to the water. Waterworld team. He spent some time with James Cameron talking about the filming of The Abyss and by September of 1996 with Twister, a big hit and to Bond very, very much the in-demand action director, Speed 2 went before the cameras with a budget of $110 million at the very least, over three times that of the original movie. Now, for Jason Patrick, he arrived for filming with all of those script changes that he was after. Well, let's just say not all of them had been done. And he wasn't said to have been enormously pleased about this, but there were supposed to be uh, relatively significant rewrites and relatively significant rewrites were missing. And so it wasn't the happiest of starts and things didn't massively improve, but there were still new itches for him to scratch. I mean, he took on a lot of his own stunt work, for instance, in the film, including the motorbike opening for the movie which is i mean that sequence is arguably the fastest thing in the film in the end patrick did have some perilous moments performing his own stunts there was one where that nearly led to a a fatal accident uh i'll come to that shortly but the centerpiece of this was always going to be I, i mean it's bizarre just saying it now i mean for all hindsight is easy a slow moving boat in a film called speed and uh, I mean, a slow-moving boat that was shooting out on open water at certain points to the point where rescue boats had to surround the ship where they were filming at all times. Uh, and the ship itself was quite an investment too. That they got a four hundred and fifty-nine-foot-long uh, boat called the Seaborn Legend, which they hired for the production, and then they built a couple of full-size replicas of it as well. Now, the the production required both Bullock and Patrick to spend long long stretches of time in the water and there were there were I mean Jan de bon wanted to do things for real as much as he'd made Twister he wanted his stunts as much to be in camera as he could he's I mean he gave an interview saying I prefer the real thing you have to have stunt people there for legal reasons but they they can't really act and I don't want to see someone who's done this all his life he said I prefer to see people struggling well he got his uh, I mean he got his wish there was one moment where Sandra Bullock was nearly hit by a ship's rudder by and it was said to have just been the breadth of a couple of hairs that stopped to be all but decapitated by it. Jason Patrick on his uh, Ducati motorcycle uh, flew 30 feet up in the air and he had to cling on to a tree to stop uh, to stop a stunt going very, very badly wrong and perhaps ended his life as well. Um, Debont's continual resistance of computers as well meant that the build-up to that huge finale that he was planning. Well, that, uh, it took six months for the carpenters to build a jetty with thirty-five buildings on, with a thousand feet of track just below the surface of the water as well, just so the cruise liner could crash into it all at the end of the film. And it, I mean, it was the preparation just for that stunt was huge. Um, The problem was when they built that set and with all the buildings on it and with all the preparation in there, then they were hit by a massive hurricane. And so then they had to rebuild the set. They had to use stormproof materials the second time they did it. And so if you ever watch Speed 2 Cruise Control, and at the time of this recording, it's on the Disney Plus service, as all uh, hard-edged action movies seem to be. um, It's worth noting that if you get to the finale of it, and I'll go as spoiler-light as I can, there is this collision, and that collision alone cost $25 million to realise. It runs for about... It's five minutes of the film. It was done pretty much in one take as well, but $25 million was nearly as much as it cost... To, ...to make the entire first film. They spent it, in this case... ...effectively on the dream that Jan de Bont had had... ...ahead of the production of Speed 2. That that one sequence... That had been the starting point of the film for him was the most expensive stunt of all time at that point. And I mean, the shooting of the film was very physical. It went on for months. I mean, it started, what, in September of 1996. It wouldn't wrap up until the end of January 1997. It took place in St Martin in the West Indies. They spent six weeks on the cruise liner itself. There was Hollywood work, but also it was difficult. And I mean, Dan de Bont would reflect this. I mean, he, he talked about how he felt the leads had no chemistry when he was making the film. And then he said we got stuck in a hurricane, in a real hurricane. And then people got sick on the ship. And he said actors would run in front of the camera, say the line and run out to throw up outside the window and then back in. And he said for the actors, it was definitely not a fun place to be. But. I mean, Hollywood is not short of stories of films that are very difficult to make turning out to be really quite wonderful to watch. Still, the chatter of Speed 2 started to go wrong in post production. Fox, uh, if it was having doubts, it should be noted, wasn't showing them. It had earmarked a release date of June the 13th, 1997. It had built up an enormous marketing campaign for this. It was giving it a huge push as its big summer hope. But this was the era of the World Wide Web breaking through for consumers, for us people at the end of it all. And the first couple of movie websites were springing up. And this was the summer. The summer of 1997 was uh, really, effectively, the summer of the Ain't It Cool News website which, I mean, lots of stories about it since, but this was the point where Hollywood felt that this website had an awful lot of power. Disproportionately I'd suggest, but it was the story of the time. And two blockbuster movies were caught in its crosshairs because what Ain't It Cool was doing was it was publishing reviews from people who were going to test screenings of movies. This horrified Hollywood executives absolutely horrified them and it didn't help that there were two films coming out in the summer of 1997 that were going down like lead balloons in test screenings so Batman and Robin was one Speed 2 was the other one and the early word as a result of these reports spreading on the web was hostile now I would suggest again I'm very much pinch of salt with this and it gives too much credit I think to a website I'm not a massive fan of but I would suggest that not that many people were actually reading uh, the, the site on the World Wide Web at that point. And I think it became a bit of a Hollywood story more than a global consumer story. But still, there was little getting around the fact that when people were going to test screenings of Speed 2, they were not impressed. They were, In fact, they were hostile. It was being savaged. And it never, I mean, the point was coming up time and time again. They've made a film called Speed And they've made it with a really slow moving boat. And the feeling was that the film never really got past that. Now hot on the heels of the criticism that had been aimed at early preview screenings of Batman and Robin as well, this thrust ain't it cool, into the limelight and whilst it was Batman and Robin that was the film that really was uh, said to have been most affected by the site, the fact that Speed 2 was able to come so quickly in its aftermath and that's appreciating that Speed 2 was actually released the week before it's just the test screenings were coming sooner, well it just built up momentum and it built up this feeling that Hollywood was making bilge sequels in that particular summer as well and when speed 2 finally went before critics ahead of its nationwide release there wasn't really dissent from what those early preview screenings had been identifying that the general feeling was and still is uh the film was an absolute stinker i mean in some cases it was being listed in worst sequel of all time territory but the the feeling was that this had just missed the mark that it was boring it just wasn't interesting the slightest. Now, there were some fairly decent reviews of the film, it's worth noting. But still, the general feeling was, what on earth has gone on here? And it didn't help how, in the early stages of the film, the uh, Keanu Reeves' character from the previous movie is just basically written out through a few lines of dialogue. And you're just like a bit WTF. What on earth is going on there? Still... When Speed 2 made it into cinemas, its box office opening was ahead of that of the first Speed movie. The problem was this wasn't a sleeper hit. This wasn't a sleeper hit anymore. This wasn't off radar. This didn't have the luxury that the first Speed have of uh, out of the view of people building up its audience and gradually winning people over. This had now cost nine figures and needed to deliver. And so when it opened with $16 million in the weekend of June the 13th to the 15th, 1997, in the US I mean that was quickly identified as a disappointment Uh, and to paraphrase Indiana Jones and the last crusade its situation did not improve because wouldn't you know it, the similarly pillared Batman and Robin would follow into cinemas the week after as well make a lot more money, it's worth noting actually when Speed 2 opened, the film in second place was Con Air, the mighty Con Air which was doing pretty decent business the second Jurassic Park film was around as well, that did a little less than I expected, Addicted to Love the first Austin Powers, Gone Fishing was bringing a bit of money in for Disney not too much, the fifth element, Breakout sat in 10th place but the following week with Batman and Robin opening to 42 million dollars Speed 2 had sunk to fifth place it had been beaten by Batman and Robin my best friend's wedding Con Air holding out the Lost World Jurassic Park holding out and Speed 2 in the space of one week with poisonous word of mouth had gone from first place to 5th place. This was not going to have the word of mouth benefit of the first movie. That was proven the week after when Face Off came out and Speed 2 sank to 7 after 3 weeks in the chart and by week 4 with Men in Black cleaning up, Speed 2 was struggling to cling into the top 10 and it would drop out the week after Contact would turn up around that time I mean it's often said that the summer of 1997 was a bit of a graveyard for big blockbuster movies and certainly cynically manufactured, uh, manufactured manufactured Hollywood movies but there are a lot of interesting ones in there that did break through the lights of contact con air face off my best friend's wedding is a really good rom-com and this was one of the rare moments where in the case of both Batman and Robin which still managed to gross 100 million dollars remember and speed Two, the audience reacted against the film not being any good Who would have thunk it? And Speed 2, in the end, would gross $48 million at the US box office, a long way shy of the original movie. The budget had reportedly ballooned. I mean, one report put it at $150, million, $160 million. And the overall global box office, including the American take of the film, came in at $164 million. Now, again, to contextualise that, the first Speed film cost, what, $35 million and made $300 million. 150 million so they've managed to spend three times as much to make three times as little uh, in the aftermath of the film I mean over time most of the core creatives in it have had their say about it I mean jason it put Jason Patrick off Blockbuster Films he told IGN six years later that it was an innocuous boring movie he argued it doesn't hurt anyone it's not violent it's just stupid and it just wasn't a good experience for me and in fact in the five six years afterwards he would only make two more films Your Friends and Neighbours and NARC both of which are really worth watching for very very different reasons Sandra Bullock's got a, uh, a, a bit more out there on it. In particular, more recently, she's been promoting the film The Lost City. And she described Speed 2 then as, quote, the biggest piece of crap ever made. Um, and she called it a film about, quote, a slow boat going towards a tiny island. Uh, Keanu Reeves, he, I mean, to be fair to him, he had many chances to badmouth the film and never did. He was supportive of the second film, even though he wasn't going to be in it. Yander uh, Bont has uh, has been more critical of it since, and he would go on to make The Haunting in the aftermath of uh, a Speed 2, and that would make a bit of money, but also would be critically hit very hard. And then occasionally there's talk, just occasionally, of a possible Speed 3, and these stories have been bubbling up since... About 2005-2006, they were first being reported. However, for a Speed 3 to work, it would need Keanu Reeves and it would need Sandra Bullock on board. I don't think you could do it without either of those two core creatives in there. And as much as both of them have occasionally made the odd murmuring uh, noise towards it in interviews, there's been no real sense that they're both interested in it at the same time. And so Speed 3 feels like a bit of a pipe dream. Speed 2 Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. So I'm just going to do some parish notices before I get on with the second of the two films I'm going to talk about. Um, if you like this podcast, then there are three ways you can support it. I'm very grateful to anyone and everyone who does this. Um, you can be I mean, subscribing to it. Helps, helps. Independent podcasts enormously plays with posh algorithms. I don't understand. But just just hit a subscribe at your podcast host of choice. That's really helpful. Ideally, leave a hugely positive review. That's way number two. And that really helps as well. And then if you really, really like it, feel free to support us financially at Patreon, patreon.com slash Simon Brew. Uh, if you do that, well, first of all, the money that you put in buys all the resources to help make more podcasts. There's a lot of research material behind me uh, as I'm recording this. Um, also, I direct some of those funds to giving uh writing opportunities to up-and-coming writers to write articles to the film stories website. And so I hugely appreciate everyone who supports me there. Uh, in return, you get the podcast early, you find out gossip of what we're up to, and uh, all sorts of bits and bobs going in the land of film stories at the moment. Um, but without further ado, I am going to get on with the second of those films. I'm going back to the, uh, the 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 film archive of my beloved Kevin Costner. I'm going to one of his box office flops, though. We're going back to 1990. Uh, I'll play you a clip and then I'll come to the story of this one, The Other Side. Kevin Costner is a man who loves his freedom. Go on a vacation, man. I'm not going to work for anybody, all right? <laughs> it's good to see you. Anthony Quinn is a man who loves his power. This is... You know, uh, my wife. <laughs> this is Jay. My friend. he's told me a lot about you. She was the last thing in the world he wanted. Do you think my wife is beautiful? Hi. Hello. What do you want me to say? Of course. What are you doing here? Well, the truth is I was... until she became the only thing in the world he wanted do you feel the way i feel i don't know that i have the right to feel anything because a woman like that forget about right or wrong Do almost anything to keep her when love turns to obsession for a long time i didn't let myself want anything this is what we don't do we don't forget who we are we don't forget where we are you think that you're taking another man's way there are no rules i love you Shall I have him killed? So that was a clip from 1990s movie Revenge directed by Tony Scott written by Jim Harrison and Jeffrey Allen Fiskin based on Revenge by Jim Harrison and starring Kevin Costner Anthony Quinn Madeline Stowe and Sally Kirkland and this was uh, I I mean this was the first box office disappointment in the career of Kevin Costner just as his star was bubbling up and as he was reaching uh, global superstar status where he'd hit a year or two later but actually the story Story of this one goes back to the late 1970s and a 99 page novella written by Jim Harrison. Now this was a novella that was published in a magazine, an Esquire magazine and the story was soon of interest to Hollywood people, in particular Warner Brothers that snapped, it, uh, snapped up the rights to make a film based on revenge. And so it started developing it fairly quickly as well and in the decade it would take for the film to properly move forward and it would swap studios by the time it made it before cameras, several interesting people were involved in it take uh, legendary director John Houston for instance the director of classics such as the African Queen for a little while he was developing revenge as a possible movie and I mean he was not said to be too too sure that someone like Costner could take the lead role in this one but it went across his desk and he took a look uh, he took a look at it and Jack Nicholson was linked at that stage with taking on the lead while Houston was looking at it meanwhile Kevin Costner's career was slowly on the up I mean notably he was cut out of the film The Big Chill uh, directed by Lawrence Kasdan as a result of that he was given a a beefier role in the excellent western Silverado Fandango came along and and, I mean by 1985 that there was a sense that Costner could be the next big thing and it was around this time too that he became aware of revenge and he would explain to the New York Times that he felt an instant attraction to the material and that one sentence in particular, he recalled, stayed with him. And this was the sentence. It was, there is an impulse for vengeance among certain men south of the border that leaves even the sturdiest Sicilian gasping for fresh air. Now, Houston dropped out. Jack Nicholson never really got massively close, from what I understand. Other directors were interested. I mean, all sorts of like really high profile names. Orson Welles at one point was said to have taken a look. Sidney Pollock, Jonathan Demme, Francis Ford Coppola. And this is over the over the decades from the late 70s to the late 80s. But then, as Costner became more and more interested in it, there was another possible choice for a director, and that would be Kevin Costner, that he got more uh, more intrigued by Revenge. And in particular, he eyed the project as a possible directorial debut that he'd been making films like No Way Out, Bull Durham, The Untouchables. And he wanted to make the leap into directing. But by this stage, a producer called Ray Stark was involved. Ray Stark of Rastar Pictures. And he was unsure whether Costner was the right person for this one and would dissuade him from directing the film now stark's background had brought hit movies such as *Smoky and the bandit and peggy sue got married but he did a trade with warner brothers that got him the rights to make revenge that he traded off the rights to the film bird that clint eastwood would ultimately make for warner brothers and got revenge in exchange and as costner would say i contemplated directing revenge because it seemed like a small movie the story was manageable but the themes were big and universal and the writing was tough and it was honest and it was original. There was poignance in the story, but it read like a movie to me. But Stark talked him out of that and instead Costner would, in the aftermath of Revenge, go and direct called Dances with Wolves as his first movie just a year or two later, which would make nine figures a profit and win seven Oscars. Let's just gloss over that. Now, Costner was also juggling another project at the time, a film called Field of Dreams. And so whilst Revenge was being developed and was taking longer and longer and longer to get to a starting point... Costner just decided, I'm going to go and do Field of Dreams first. We're going to slot that in. Now, I've covered that back in episode 200, as it happened of this podcast, when I brought in the writer director of Field of Dreams, Phil Alden Robinson, to talk in more detail about that. But as Alden Robinson acknowledged on that, he knew he had a short window of time with Costner on Field of Dreams because he knew he had to deliver Costner in time to make revenge. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, though, because with Costner interested in Revenge, and he was the movie star on the up, the project suddenly had weight. Jim Harrison came back to work on the script, uh, along with Jeff Fiskin, and they retooled the lead role towards one that Kevin Costner could take on. Now, it's worth noting that, I mean, this was the first project in his career, and he's done plenty since, that Costner had identified the material. He'd taken a heavy interest in behind the camera that he took first executive producer credit on this one and he was instrumental to the ultimate development of the film and I mean it was in March of 1988 in the end that Costner was signed up to the point where the production company behind it that, that was in, originally going to fund it, New World Entertainment, had to bring in a studio partner to, uh, because the budget was now going to go up to around from up to around 20 million dollars to make. And so in came Columbia Pictures, which took on the bulk of the film's funding. But Columbia was really happy with that because it had again, it had the new film from the hot new star and and that would be terrific. So, one of the people who'd read the novella as well was Tony Scott, and Ray Stark recruited him in. I mean, to, he, coming off the back of films like Top Gun, he was in demand, but Scott was drawn to the material uh, here. And then the rest of the casting. I mean, Madeline Stowe had earned a hit in Stakeout in 1987 uh, under the gu- uh, under the stewardship of director John Badham. I will come to that in a future episode. And she had come to the attention of the production, agreed to take on a role. And then Anthony Quinn, meanwhile, seemed ideal for the other lead role in the film. I mean, in his early 70s at this point, uh, as Costner was argue, the movie needed Anthony Quinn more than it needed me. He says that, I mean, there are probably five or six guys who could play... the Cochran's role which is Costner's but who else is there who could play the role of Tibby in the film which is ultimately taken on by Anthony Quinn now, with, Scott on, with Tony Scott on board, the cast coming together, uh, Scott and Costner worked to bring the film back to basics. And again, going back to that interview that Costner gave, he said, the fact is that it's such a rich story that every writer was able to derive things out of it. And he says, as it was rewritten, it got further away from what the book was. And he said, in the final analysis, what I tried to do was bring it back to what had attracted everyone to the book, Which was that it's a story, a 99 page story, and the script for that 99 page story started going before the cameras on the 19th of September 1988. Now, Costner had come to the film direct from the set of Field of Dreams. In fact, Field of Dreams had overrun due to problems with agriculture. Again, that's in a previous episode. Um, and as a result of that, Costner had planned to take a holiday between the two, which he wasn't able to do, and he had to go straight from one to the other. And so he arrived from the set of Revenge, having made several, several movies pretty much back to back. The film was filmed on location. In Mexico, rare locations included Durango, Puerto Puerto Vallarta, Mexico City. And Costner was insistent that as much as he was having more control before the behind the camera, he wasn't in charge of it. He said, I'm not directing the movie. And he said, what I try to do is keep the movie on track, meaning that if the movie starts to slip away dramatically... There are certain things I can't control, even as an executive producer. And he he said films always threaten to go somewhere else, Uh, not because someone's trying to do it on purpose, but because they're fragmented. That's the way they're shot. And Costner just argued, you just become another eye looking out for the movie now with tony scott i mean the style of it very much appealed to him he he would he would argue that i think i have a reputation for being a visual director and glitzy and rock and roll and he said not everyone was convinced in terms of giving me this material because it's different from what i've done and he said i suppose i loved it because it has a whole range of emotional buttons to push it's got passion violence it's set in the strange world of mexico with these overwhelming locations those beautiful landscapes and so it was I, i mean he enjoyed parts of the shooting of this before it started to go a little bit off the rails. Now, one person who was making one of his very first film appearances was the actor John Leguizamo. And the film pops up in his excellent book, Pimps, Hoes, Players, Haters and all the rest of my Hollywood friends. Well worth a look. And he talked about one night on set where, well, one day on set where the night before he'd had a a bit of a night. He'd come in hungover, still drunk, effectively, and had not endeared himself to his co-stars. And as Leguizamo writes of working with Costner, he said, Costner said to him, I want to teach you something, son. I'm going to teach you about lighting. Get out of my light. Now, if you can just manage that, we might have a good movie here. And as Leguizamo said, I'll never forget that. Never block a star's light. Got it, cocksucker. The the film's production, though, became relatively tense. And it was due to sparks starting to fly between Ray Stark, the producer, and Tony Scott, the director. And it's worth going into the kind of movies that Ray Stark was making to get an idea of why things were going wrong. I mean, he'd worked uh, with John Huston, he worked with Barbara Streisand uh, on films such as Funny Girl. He'd produced the enormously expensive musical version of the Broadway hit Annie in the early 1980s as well. And his taste was not towards, uh, well, very violent films with lots of sex in them. Yet he sort of seemed to be making a version of that film. I mean, there's a relatively explicit Uh, hanky-panky scene in Revenge between Costner and Madeline Stowe that wasn't rehearsed and, and was put together on the set that was very much not to Ray Stark's taste Stark also was not warming at all to the heavy violence, uh, but Scott continued to make the film his way. The problem being that Tony Scott did not have final cut on this movie, and this would crop up as an issue in post-production that the power lay with Ray Stark. Now, Larry Taylor lays some of this out in his book *Tony Scott: Filmmaker on Fire*. But as the film wrapped up in on the fourteenth of December, nineteen eighty-eight, well. It was reported that Revenge had gone over budget. It was originally budgeted around fifteen million dollars. It had spiked up by by six or seven million. It was up to twenty-two million. And there were I mean they were said to be, quote, constant feuds, unquote between Ray Stark and Columbia Pictures' head Dawn Steele during the making of the film as well. Stark was said to have banned Columbia Pictures' Vice President Terry Hyman from the set of the film. Stark was also not seeing eye-to-eye with Tony Scott. And as the film headed into the editing room, well, there were all sorts of challenges here that hadn't been resolved on the set and they were certainly going to bubble up when it came to post-production and the edit. And so Scott had, I mean, a year really to get the film together. But the edit of it was a battle and Stark would exercise his right to have his cut of the film released. That he came up with a, I mean, ironically, he came up with a version of the film that was longer than Tony Scott's. That what he felt needed to happen was that extra space needed to put in between the violent moments and the sex moments and just make sure that there's more dialogue and backstory linking them all together to put a bit more uh, you know a bit more fluff in between it all really now this was the opposite of what Tony Scott had envisaged he was thinking this needs to be a much much leaner film this has to be a very concentrated one now during the production of the movie Scott had tried to placate Ray Stark by shooting extra dialogue here and there by putting in material that would allow the pace of the film to slow down. And when it got into the edit room, Stark was asking for that material, not even asking, uh, was insisting that that material had to be put in and it elongated the running time of the film Uh, during the process as well. Crucially, Ray Stark's confidence in the picture started to drop. That the final cut that Stark was happy to sign off was 124 minutes long. It went over two hours for what should have been a lean thriller. Very much the opposite of what Scott and Costner felt they were getting into. And as much as Tony Scott tried to get the pacing going a little more, um, he, he just didn't have that crucial final cut. And the tension seeped over to its star as well. I mean, this was the film that Costner was more hands-on with. And as he told Empire magazine in its fourth issue, he, he insisted revenge is a good story, but it's a very tough story to pull off. And Costner was pulling no punches in this interview and the film hadn't been released in the UK at this point. He said it doesn't have a conventional ending. It's violent and it's vulgar. It has to be steeped in character. And here's the killer. If the people who put it together don't understand that... They're going to be making a mistake with that movie. Well, the people who were putting it together, by the sounds of it, didn't understand that. And we Stark no longer really... I mean, his heart was falling out of revenge. It wasn't a film he was particularly pleased with. And it was pushed to a, an off-peak release slot. That Stark with Columbia's backing moved it to February of 1990 rather than the end of uh, 1989 where it quite quite happily sat. And this was a surprise because, again, it was a movie star film. You know, Costner wasn't at the height of his powers, but he was very much on the up. He was the bright new star. And so to dump the film in February was seen as well. Seen as what it was, a loss of confidence in the project. Now, of course, now a film coming out in February has a great chance of being a huge hit movie, but the conventional wisdom of Hollywood back in 1990 was, if you're putting it in February, it better be a rom-com, because otherwise it's an absolute stinker, and it's not going to make a penny back. Now, what the elongated post-production of the film did allow was, all, all concerned, to go off and do other things. That Scott was in the midst of making Days of Thunder by the time Revenge eventually rolled around on February the 16th, 1990. Costner was off making Dances with Wolves at this stage. But what he was on the eve of as well was his first flop since uh since his star had risen and so revenge went before movie critics and movie critics were not particularly pleased to see it most of the criticism of this one just felt like it had lost something in translation I mean, some of the criticism was specifically aimed at Costner was this him just having a bit of a vanity project here was the film really coming together it was just too long it was ambling it was a bit all over the shop and whilst Jim Harrison was quite happy with it and happy that. There Got close to the novella that he'd penned, the bloated film was not getting good write-ups, and as the film went into cinemas, well, the response to it just just wasn't great. Uh, it wasn't just the critics who weren't best pleased with it; as it turned out, audiences were hardly flocking to see it too. Uh, the weekend it, o- it opened with six million dollars, um, and it was up against films like Driving Miss Daisy, that was the number one that week uh, on its Oscar run at that point. Hard to Kill with Steven Seagal was second. Uh, Madden house remember that that was in fourth born on the fourth of july clive barker's nightbreed was around uh the little mermaid steel magnolias was sitting in the uh in the top 10 as well i mean ironically steel magnolias was another ray stark film as well uh, and by its second week in cinemas i mean revenge had just petered out to what Below $3 million, and then the weekend after it was below $2 million, and it was sinking pretty much like a stone, really. That the film uh, at the US box office would ultimately bring in $15 million in total, and was regarded as a sizable disappointment. Now, it was Costner's first flop. Uh, It didn't recoup its its budget back at the box office. And also it didn't have a massive resurrection on video and subsequently DVD either. Apart from the fact that there were stories of this other version of the film. That Tony Scott had been after a slightly different cut. A a Lena cut. And before his death he did get the chance to put that together. That in... 2007, so what we moved on 17 years in the story Scott recut the movie for a DVD and Blu-ray release and this was a director's cut that knocked 20 minutes out of the film. Uh, the new version would be 104 minutes long, it would add things in some of the scenes were expanded and bulked out but a lot of things were taken out and the score was changed and a much much leaner driven film was the end result of that. Now whether the That would have broken through at the box office in 1990. I I mean, it's anyone's guess, really. Crystal balls and hindsight and all that. But the shorter version of Revenge was, I mean, it's generally regarded as the better version of it. Although the film is still seen as a relatively minor entry in both Tony Scott and Kevin Costner's canon. It just happens to be one that has some fairly high profile fans of it. For me, as a dedicated Kevin Costner nut, I I think Revenge has its moments. I don't think it fully entirely works. But I do think, and not for the first time, it was a pretty bold swing at a time in his career where Costner... Costner was taking a fair amount of them. He wouldn't work with Tony Scott again, but he would pursue his directorial debut, and Dances with Wolves, what, a year after the release of Revenge, Costner was the biggest movie star in the world, off the bat, apart from Arnold Schwarzenegger perhaps, off the back of his Dances with Wolves gamble. Maybe they should have let him direct Revenge, although I quite like the Tony Scott version of it, but it remains one of those interesting films that you look at someone's listing on IMDb, you think, oh, what on earth is out. i do think it's worth a peek but the story of this one was not for the first time in the history of the film stories podcast a bit of mangling behind the scenes which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories and as always thank you for listening and thank you for your time if I've not bored the life out of you yet you can find me on Twitter at Simon Brew and you can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod, we've got a website filmstories.co.uk, that's updated every weekday with movie news, reviews, features and mayhem and things like that if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk you can find our print magazine so we're up to issue 34 nearly 35 of Film Stories magazine which is hundred pages pretty much every month and then we've got film junior magazine now at the week at the point this podcast has been released issue 10 of the magazine is just about to go on sale that one leads on the film the railway children return and what i really love about film junior is we've got the young stars of the railway children return talking to young reporters who uh, who get get the stories of the making of the film so you can order both you can order all the magazines and our sneakers blu-ray at store.filmstories.co.uk you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash online, and you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash filmstories. The next Film Stories Live events coming up at the London Podcast Festival on September the 15th. More details of that shortly. But for now, I'm going to leave you in peace. I'm going to thank you for your time. Thank you for your eardrums. Wish you all the best. I'll be back soon with another bunch of Film Stories. In the meantime, you all look after yourselves. Take care and Bye-bye.